Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're going to listen back today to a conversation we had in March of 2019 with the legendary Oregon writer Barry Lopez. Lopez died of prostate cancer on Christmas Day in 2020. Pay attention to small things, Barry Lopez would urge himself, and so often he did. He stared at rocks, at model ships and silver coins, at dead animals and live ones. And after paying attention to these small things, he would think about big ones, about empire and capitalism, about the genocide of indigenous peoples and the destruction of their cultures— about cruelty and despair, but also about beauty and kindness and hope. All of this was wrapped up in Lopez's final book, Horizon. It's an autobiographical reflection on a career devoted to traveling to every corner of the world, from the poles to the equator and mountains to deserts. What is going to happen to us, he asked. What is our fate if we do not learn to speak to each other over our cultural divides with an indifferent natural world bearing down on us? I started our conversation back in 2019 by asking Lopez about a place he wrote a lot about in Horizon, Cape Foulweather on the Oregon coast. Cape Foulweather was a place that I was marginally interested in because it's Cook's, James Cook's uh, landfall. And so I was mildly curious about what it actually looked like. So I was going to go and stand in the place he was looking at, but not looking to the east from his ship. I was going to be looking from to the west at his ship. Hmm. Um, And the place began to grow on me because um, it was a clear cut I was camped in and the wounds of the world were apparent where I was camped on 10 or 12 occasions. And it's presence, um, its battered landscape uh, felt like now. This is what we're living with now. And then out of that, the book grows. You describe looking out at the horizon from this perch, looking out at, at Cape Falweather and, and the, the horizon, the Pacific yes. beyond, with binoculars, sometimes with binoculars, sometimes just your naked eyes, for hours on end. What are you looking at? What are you looking for? Um, I don't think my way of writing is to search for something that I could frame as an answer. Most of it is just sitting and watching and waiting. And if you do that enough, eventually something you never thought of will emerge and that ties to something else. So I don't write quickly um, and I don't think very quickly. I, I watch for things that most of us ignore, not to put myself in a superior position, but I'm after what's deep, which comes up out of a scene and winks at you every once in a while. It seems like you're talking about what has popularly become known as mindfulness. Is that oh. is that a phrase that, that you like? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I, I don't like names for uh, landscapes that take a long time to get to. I mean, it's wonderful if you can say that you are mindful, but I think you should be as well as you can manage it living in that frame of mind all the time. So um, – you know, I'm I'm just an ordinary person, really. I I bring a kind of intensity to what I'm doing when it's time to work. You know, I can clown around and be funny and lighthearted and whatnot, and in moments when that's appropriate. But when I think of work, what is your work? My work is to turn on the intensity control knob and bring it up to max out and just sit there with it. You write at one point, I have never in my life gotten quite enough of the Pacific. Yes. Have you gotten enough of other places you've been to? No. You know, someone would say, well, you know, you've traveled all over the world. You've been here and there, blah, 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 Timbuktu. (laughs) And (laughs) 
is there, where it's your favorite place? And I say the same thing. It's my home. I've been living in the same house on the Mackenzie River, 40 miles west of Eugene for 49 years. And the reason I say that uh, it's my place to go to or sentimentally my favorite place is because that's where I've had the longest conversation with a physical place. And I know as the years go by, there's always something I never thought of or imagined that will blossom there one day when I least expect it. I could give you an example of that. Please. That's reading in the middle of summer uh, in not always bright sunshine in the deep woods, but sitting in a chair reading every summer I will see a bug I've never seen before trundling across the white pages. And I think, Literally oh, on the book. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, book's in the way of where they want to go, and so they've got to go over <laughs> it. But, but it reminds you or me every summer you, you will never get to the bottom of this place or any other place for that matter. Um, you mentioned that even in the middle of summer, it's dark there because you're in the, 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 the big woods. Is, how does that tie to your sense that that is more home-like than any place you've lived? I mean, the fact that you're in a kind of enclosure. It's, um, um, do you know the expression, go to ground, to just... Yeah, uh, but I, I think of it as, as, as like, a, like a gopher going to its, its hole, to, to, to go away from, you know, predator. Is that wrong? Right. No, it's right. It's fine. Um, I, I do think that I, I seek a, a situation where there are fewer distractions, except the one distraction is what am I trying to, what am I thinking about? What and how can I think better about that? So it's why I say at some point in the book, I'm always drawn to the tundra, to the ice in Antarctica, to being at sea, where it's a large tabula rasa. And I can begin to take what's in my head and put it out there in that space and then start walking through like you're walking through a museum. So I don't – the studio where I write, I never take food in there. There's no telephone in there. Um, it, it, it's my own way of reminding myself that you didn't get to go to Antarctica and these other places. So if I get to go, if that's how things fall out, I have to pay attention there. I've got to be ethically responsible to a reader who didn't get to go to say, this is what I saw as best I can say it. What do you think? <laughs> the weather, uh, going back to the time you spent in Cape Falweather, um, the weather, <laughs> especially for one um, couple day trip that you took there, it really figures prominently. You went there because a huge storm was coming. That's right. Why was it important for you to be there I to witness to a storm? I wanted to be in it. Huh. You know, there is a feeling I think all of us have of wanting to fully experience something you've never experienced before. So I'm, I'm drawn to that kind of thing. And the fact that it was uh, high winds and lots of rain and uh, was just what I was looking for. You know, I, I'm not sure I agree with you when you say that everybody is looking for things they haven't experienced before. A lot of people, whether we acknowledge it or not, we we seek out what we know, what's familiar, because that's comfortable. Sure. Well, yeah, uh, but, I, but but you you're different. It looks like it. <laughs> I don't. What I want to steer clear of is that this is a search for, um, you know, this is bravado. I, I, in, I probably, like, like you're a storm chaser, right? Not that's not what I what I am. And I've gone into things where I'm really at my own edge. Other people I'm with have been doing this before, but for me. Um, it's it's brand new, and I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm trying to triumph in any way. But if I'm writing the story that I think I'm writing, I have I have to be inside those uh, difficulties that the people I'm writing about endure every day they go out there. Hmm. So I end up getting credit 
for being a lot braver, a lot stronger, whatever it is, than I really am. Hmm. As you mentioned, you set up the camp um, in the Coast Ranger overlooking the Pacific in a clear cut. It's a place that a lot of people – you mentioned it as a wound. A lot of people see it as – as ugly, as an example of environmental degradation. Others see it as, as utilitarian, as, as what's left behind when, when we take advantage of, of a renewable resource and then replace it with a, a plantation. How do you see this particular version of a human-created landscape? As a wound. Um, the, and it's not about economy. It's not about scenery. It's the evidence of a brutal relationship with the known earth. And it's the brutality, which is unnecessary, that that really upsets me. I would say at the same time, the time to be upset about clear cuts um, is um, it's very late in the game to express outrage uh, as opposed to doing something about it. I, I cannot get over the fact that 20 years after this conversation with you, neither you nor I might be here, that we will have brought this level of aggressive destruction against the earth to such a fever pitch, there won't be any place for us. There will be for other animals, but apparently not for us. This gets to stuff we're going to be talking about as we go. This is um, that sense of... Honest fatalism is threaded throughout the book. I should remind folks that uh, I'm talking right now with the Oregon-based writer Barry Lopez. His new book is called Horizon. Um, I want to turn now, though, to some music because there's also – there's beauty and wonder in this book as well, as I mentioned. You note that you often take music along with you to listen to in in various places. In general, how do you choose – what you want to hear in, in any particular place. Um, something I want to find something appropriate to the moment. I guess what that might be. I say in the book, you know, when I went to to camp for a while on Scrailing Island in the high Arctic that I, I say in the book, I think, I chose the obvious things, which were um, uh, music that was a was akin to or generated by the kind of place that I was going to, something related to that landscape. And the longer I stay there, uh, the more I might find that, well, this was wrongheaded and this is wrongheaded, but there might be something in my backpack of tapes that fits right in. Let's have a listen to one of the pieces that you brought to to the Arctic, to Scrailing Island. This is a piece called The Swan of Tuonela. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, by, mm-hmm. by Sibelius. Um, let's have a listen. the vistas that you saw? The only that come up in my mind right now is uh, Tuonela is uh, the um, landscape of the end game in, fin- in Finnish mythology. Um, and I didn't feel that kind of spiritual darkness when I was camped in what's called a polar desert. Um, it's far too far north to have trees uh, its uh, summers are moderately warm and winters actually are moderately cold. I mean, like 25 and 30 below, but not as cold as it gets in the interior because it has the moderating influence of water nearby. Um, what I'm looking for with music is how did Sibelius, in his mind, see a relationship between a real place and tonal values and the way in which he would assemble those values to create this thing we're listening to in the background, and how true might it have been? You're interested in, in symbols and metaphor, at, at, at approximations of a, a way an artist 
takes the, the, the world around them and turns it into art. Is that a fair way to put it? I don't know. Um, what I'm, uh, let's see, what I'm, what I'm looking for is I know that I'm in a patterned place. It has color and line, uh, sonic values. You know, there's a sonic landscape there. And I assemble them in a certain way because I'm white and 74 years old and male. And I've got all those um, organizing principles that, that, that take something unknown to me and organize it in a way where it's apprehensible. What I want to find with the music is how did somebody else see this and put it together and create musical equivalents? If I do that, then I have the two poles um, uh, between which I can tie a thread and have it vibrate. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, then ideas I didn't have at all, nor maybe did Sibelius, will emerge. I, I'm looking for the music to trigger some assemblage of sensation that I couldn't have had without the music. Mm -hmm. You also write um, about a very different musical experience than this Sibelius. You came up with the idea of playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That's the famous one that, that has the ode to joy in it. You want to play it in an old Thule camp that they're a now extinct group of people who are indigenous to the Arctic. What was your plan in the beginning? My plan was to to share something that in Western culture we value, um, we put it up on the top shelf. Hmm. This is some of the best we can do, the Beethoven Ninth. Um, and I didn't realize until I hiked to this campsite, it's about 900 years old, and the ceremonial house there had been excavated so it's easy for me to go there and imagine these people sitting on the stone benches. And I came in and tried to explain that I believe that all cultures have dimensions of beauty that are comprehensible to most people. And you played a, a, a tape recorder, a tape I, of uh, the Beethoven, Beethoven Ninth. Ninth. Let's have a, a listen just to the beginning of this Beethoven Symphony that you played for the then gone, still obviously now gone, Thule people. Right. like to play that? Humiliating. Um, in my enthusiasm to uh, take my little tape recorder and crawl out of my sleeping bag and cross this one mountain and descend into their camp, I thought this is my gesture of respect for Thule culture and Thule people and I want to stand here naked and put something really great out to, to offer it. And I wasn't, I was about that far into the first movement when I realized how incredibly um, racist it was of me to, to, to imagine my whole life uh, during different periods immersed in traditional cultures. How could I have been so stupid as to think that I could bring something in th that would enter engage their imaginations. I, it was a humiliating thing to do. And in the structure of Horizon, I thought when I, was, when I sat down to write the book, you have to talk about this. You have to show in detail what a terrible, uh, essentially racist thing this was to do. You meant well, but uh, no... Because did you, then, did you believe at the time that that the spirits of Thule people were hearing this? Yes. You did. Yes, and I I felt the glare, if you will, of those people that were sitting ghostly hmm. in in the ceremonial 
in that ceremonial space. What do you wish you had done instead? I wish that I'd crossed the mountain that night, left the recorder behind me, and sat with them and said nothing. Did you want to ask them questions? No, it would have been been, uh, impertinent to— So just being— just sitting with them, and one if one of them chose to say something that would be great, but to actually interview them, you you do want to do that because you're thinking about how things work in your world. Uh, surely, I wanted to ask them about the traces of life that I dug for in that archaeological site every day. I would want to say, who did this? What did it mean? And what how do? What other things do you carve? What materials do you use? On and on and on. But. So, so much of understanding the human past is is being present without a plan, being being present without an agenda. And that very act of, of crossing the mountain and descending into their camp and telling them something that was on my mind was disrespectful and it was profoundly naive. One of the themes that runs through the book in a lot of different places where you visit is just how much has been lost because of the genocide of indigenous peoples all around the world. And you focus not just on the violence against human beings, but on the loss of knowledge. You write this, what perished with their cultures were their unique ideas of what it meant to be courteous, reverent, courageous, and just. What disappeared with them were their thoughts about what could be expected to be going on in the places into which we cannot see. As our own cultures continue to unfold around the riptides of aggressive commerce and heedless development, it seems these thoughts might have been good things to have made note of. The implication here is that in in many cases, we are never even going to know what we have had a hand in destroying. Correct. What do you do with that? You have to live with it. Um, I think we're, to some degree, in the West, we believe that things can be repaired and recovered. And part of maturing in a Western culture is realizing that what you threw away is gone forever. These people, their ideas, um, their way of seeing a way around universal difficulty. What does every culture, how do they handle adultery, for example, which is is whatever you think of it as an act. It is a disruption that it's like tearing a piece of cloth. How do, how do you repair it? You can reweave it, but you can't do it overnight. You can't do it with technology. And so often we think, what is the technological answer to global climate change? Guess what? There isn't any. And unless you can make that switch from we can engineer our way out to a place where you're where you're thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't be waiting for some hallelujah story or some profoundly informed engineer who can give us some biochemical answer to the problems that plague us until you get to the place where you realize it's up to you and your imagination. You're at a, you're at a dead end, and and we could be there. We could arrive shortly at a place where we see that in the hominid line, the development of an imagination was maladaptive and the species disappeared. Meaning um, we were smart enough to take fossil fuels out of the ground and burn them to enable all kinds of aspects of, of culture and technological culture that we have enjoyed the fruits of. But we were not smart enough, quote-unquote, to deal with the repercussions of doing that. Not only that, but previous cultures have seen deeply enough into the relationship between place and people or humanity and the physical places in which it finds itself as a species to, to make part of their cultural approach, don't touch. Don't touch that. Um, Huxley, I can't remember which of the Huxleys said once when he was in the presence of someone who was, uh, for his audience, elucidating how primitive uh, traditional people are. And he was saying, well, you know, they're, they're full of superstition. And Huxley said, superstition is not the right word. The right word is technique of awareness. 
So these cultures had a way of consciously paying attention to what was going on and uh, to re- and remember to remember. Hmm. And so the whole huge structure of our place in the world was examined repeatedly and it always came with a caveat, which is some things should not be touched, just leave them alone. We touch everything. We wipe out peoples, we wipe out ideas, we ban religions, and look where it's gotten us. You actually have a, a small, concrete example um, uh, of different ways of seeing, and that's sort of the, the Western view that that you and I uh, and many of our listeners come from, um, and and an indigenous view. In this case, this is about when you saw a grizzly bear um, eating a caribou carcass or sitting right. on a caribou carcass. Right. Can you describe what you saw uh, and what other people you talked to saw and were experiencing? The the awareness that I had in that moment was that if I had been who I am 20 years ago and come to the situation, I would have missed most of what was going on because I, I was so interested at the, uh, when I was young in having it have meaning and have a point to it and have uh, what you might say would be the in your memory would be the one picture that reminded you of this incident. Hmm. And after years of traveling with traditional people, I saw the shortfall there that I had been to many places, I thought, but actually hadn't been there at all because I was paying more attention to what I was thinking than I was to what was in front of me. So it's years of instruction that led me to see the incident in an entirely different way. And so that section that you're referring to is early in the book, and I'm just trying to offer uh, the thought that not only do we not all see things differently, but because we do, we arrive at sometimes profoundly different cultures. Um, Western people raised in Western cultures um, use language too casually from from my point of view. Uh, They reduce an incident to language so quickly that the subtle parts of it are are often lost before they're even recognized. And... You know, I I had this in front of me in dozens of examples before I understood when you're traveling with traditional people in their landscape, hardly anybody talks. Why? Because when you create language, uh, it's because when you create language about an incident, you reduce the incident to a place where it has meaning instead of a place where it stimulates. So you just let that filter the whole day filter through you. And then maybe in the evening somebody says something about something you saw. But if you do it often enough, you realize nobody's talking about the things that you as an individual saw. They're talking about the things that you missed. And so you ask yourself, if I wasn't trying to assign meaning to everything that I've encountered, I would see a very different landscape here. That's the late Barry Lopez from our conversation in March of 2019. We'll hear the rest of that conversation after a short break. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. We're listening back today to our 2019 conversation with the legendary Barry Lopez. He lived and wrote on Oregon's Mackenzie River for 50 years in a house he shared with his wife, the writer Deborah Gwartney. Much of their property burned down in September of 2020. Lopez died of cancer three months later. Lopez was the author of 16 books and the recipient of numerous awards, fellowships, and prizes. His last book called Horizon focused on his travel to six different parts of the world, the Arctic Circle, Antarctica, Australia, Kenya, the Galapagos Islands, and the coast of Oregon. But it's not about travel per se. It's about how these places shaped the way Lopez thought about the world as a whole, our past, our present, and our future. I asked Lopez to read two sections from his book back to back, and he started with a caveat that tells you a lot about who he was as a human being. Uh, Before we start, I want to say that really 
I'm just somebody that got to go to all of these places. Um, and I feel, as I said earlier, an ethical obligation to speak in a way that, that makes these places, I hope, comprehensible to those of us who didn't get to go. And that I'm not an unusual or larger than life. I'm just a human being who feels an obligation to a community. So Maybe you're not larger than life, but maybe you are unusual in the way that you bring your attention to the world. I'm kind of fanatical about <laughs> not about not about not wanting to be seen as, as extraordinary. Right. Okay. I think that our audience has absolutely heard that, and they can make their own decisions about okay. whether or not you are an extraordinary. Okay. Individual. It's just my self consciousness <laughs> speaking. Fair okay. Enough. Let's start with this. Okay. So a ponga is uh, like a dory, a small boat. I rolled out of the ponga and kicked hard for the dark bottom I saw below me. The bottom that came into focus, however was not a continuation of lava flows from the shore of Bartolome. It was a huge school of orange-eyed mullet. Before I could halt my descent, the schooling fish parted, rising up around me in the form of a hollow cylinder. As I continued downward, the fish below me parted to reveal a white, sandy bottom at about 35 feet. When I turned over to look back up at the fish from below, I saw that the elongated school stretched off more than a hundred feet in both directions. The lowest layer of this lens was about five feet off the bottom. The mullet were swimming in tight synchrony, veering and milling. Thousands of them moved in unison above me like a single thunderhead. When I needed to ascend, I put my hands together over my head like a springboard diver, kicked and started moving up through them. When I glanced down, I saw the white bottom wink out beneath me and slowly, wink out beneath me and slowed my rise. Wherever I extended my hands now, the fish moved gracefully aside. When I pulled in my legs and hugged them to my chest, the fish came in closer, and for a few moments I was entirely surrounded. When the last layer of fish divided above me, I saw the white bottom of the panga through about 10 feet of water. That minute and a half with the orange-eyed mullet was an experience my body as well as my mind continued to remember. Here, for me, was the edge of the miraculous. In every corner of the world, there was such resplendent life, unexpected, integrated, anonymous. So here's the second reading that you referred to. And, and, and again, it's we're on the Yangtze River. At the top of the stairs, I entered the night market. Passengers were haggling over root vegetables, turnips, onions, potatoes, and merchants were shouldering their way through with plastic buckets of butchered meat. Others were carrying strings of ulcerated fish from the Yangtze, water in which I had seen all manner of waste floating, and, to my astonishment, two endangered Yangtze River dolphins. Live monkeys and other small mammals, hedgehogs among them, stared out from the confines of screened metal cages. In one booth, wicker trays of dead crickets and heaps of caterpillars were on display, beneath a kind of clothesline from which dozens of sparrow-like birds hung by their feet. This was more than the atavistic scenes of medieval meat markets that Peter Artson painted in the 16th century. It was the future, the years to come, when we would begin killing and consuming every last living thing. I want to hear those back-to-back because of the contrast in them. The first one ends, here was the edge of the miraculous. In every corner of the world, there was such resplendent life, unexpected, integrated, anonymous. And as we just heard, the the second one ends in the future, we would begin killing and consuming every last living thing. How do you reconcile these two moments that you experienced? Um, They're reconciled for us in life, 
if, you know, you go and write about a place and it's nothing but darkness and bad things, everybody knows that's not the place. Nothing is like that. And if you write about um, the bright and the beautiful and the heart lifting and the soul stirring, life's not like that either. So throughout the book, um, I'm trying to be honest about the darkness I encountered, but to, I, I am also trying to emphasize that it is cowardly to let it all be dark. You, you have to have some movement of the heart that reopens the dark world that we despair over to possibility, uh, especially the possibility of another understanding. You wrote that when you started your career, um, you saw yourself as something of a courier, that you were yeah. carrying news from other lands about how marvelous and incomprehensible life out there was. You're bringing it to readers back home, people yeah. who are more or less like you, I think was the, the implication. Yeah. How do you see your role now? Same thing. Go, go someplace, look hard, travel hard, make sure you ask those who live there for their permission to go along with them bring as many interpreters into the circle as you can manage. Um, try to see something worth a reader's time. Um, and, you know, as you, as you imply, I have been doing this now for 50, more than 50 years. It's, it's where I'm comfortable. Um, I, I'm not a reporter. I'm not a travel writer. You know, I'm... I'm somebody who loves language and loves to arrange language in ways that are engaging. And, you know, the, whatever authority I have isn't something I can claim. The authority that the writer has is entirely the decision of the reader. You write that um, if there was a siren landscape for me in my 40s and 50s, it was Antarctica. Yes. What was calling to you? You know, I don't know. I joke about it. You know, after Arctic Dreams, another book that I, I wrote, uh, came out. Um, and won a National Book Award. Yeah, yeah. Do you hate when I say that, when no, people say no, that? No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I thought, well, I wonder what Antarctica is like. <laughs> and I remember being in the cockpit of the plane uh, C-130 that flew us into McMurdo Base and— by that time, even from the air, I thought, yeah, these two places have only one thing in common, and that's they're both white. <laughs> and beyond that, it's all sitting out there in front of me. But I, I knew immediately that you can't reduce Antarctica and the polar ice, in, which is sea ice in, at the North Pole, that th these places are really fundamentally different, you know, and I made six trips, I think, to, to find out what the difference was. But so much of Antarctica is completely undefined. It's not that difficult. In fact, I make a joke where I was in the interior in the Transantarctic Mountains in southern Victoria land, and uh, I had climbed up to a place called Bull Pass and um, walked out across down the spine of the uh, Olympic range, and I thought, oh, I don't want to be a big shot kind of thing here, but I, I very possibly am the first person who ever walked here, and about five minutes later, I came on a camera case <laughs> sitting on the ground, and, and later, I, I, uh, I, it was identified for me as um, a camera case that belonged to somebody who was in a helicopter and dropped it. So I still could have been the first person to walk here, but that it made me see, don't you see, that's just a joke. Well, it's, <laughs> it's and it's interesting. I mean, you then after that, after that realization um, follows the, 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 the self-castigation. And, and I, if I recall correctly, you say something like, what did I miss? Yes. Because I was focused on this sort exactly. of hubristic idea right. that I was the first human ever. I was so wrapped up in Mr. Cool that I forgot to be looking what was lying out there beyond that that character or that characterization of the narrator who is me. Even though at this point in, in your life and your travels, you were, you were very critical of this sort of Western idea, this imperial idea of, of conquering land, it was still hard for you not to, to get sort of sucked into that mentality for a second. 
Oh yeah, everybody. It's you know, it's such a vacuum space. Everybody gets sucked into it. Um, and when you're traveling in Antarctica, you're, um, you know, if you're based at McMurdo Base, which is like a mining town or something, uh, five minutes out of town, you you see the face of God without trying. It 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 is a place that is. I I would say the word would be resplendent. And I also found wherever I was in Antarctica, the absence of time. The, it, 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 you know, I could tell you that in the interior, there are no animals. There, you know, there's algae in the snow or something. But, the, you know, you can put everything on the ground around your camp and nobody is ever going to bother it because nobody is there. You're the only people there and there are no animals moving through. So one way to see this is... In those regions of Antarctica, which is most of the continent, there's physics, there's chemistry, but there is no biology. Hmm. And because there's not, given the way human beings are tuned into the passage of time, you always feel, or at least I did, that there there is no passage of time here. And in the summer, you know, when it's sunlight all the time, that's in it enhances, it, it increases the strength of that feeling. And you're off planet. I, I so often, even in the winter, you know, I was in deep Antarctica. In the dark. In, in the dark. In, in the forever in, dark. In the forever dark. Um, but in, in both places, the only thing I could make work were all of these images we've all seen from, from off planet movies, or, you know, space exploration or something like that. I wonder if we could get one more reading. Sure. Um, this is. This is back to sort of the, the beginning in a sense. Um, this is from your first chapter when you're talking about spending a lot of time, hours on end, looking out at the Pacific Ocean um, and, and Cape Fallowether. This is on the, um, on the Oregon coast. Um, do you mind reading us part of this passage? Sure. It's been my experience that these hours of perusing the water here or while at sea taking in the occasional bird or surfacing whale, watching light shift on the surface of the water, induce an awareness of another sort of time, a time that fills an expansive and undifferentiated volume of space, one not easily available elsewhere. On those days, such a seemingly mindless vigil offers relief from the monotony of everyday experience. During certain periods of uninterrupted vigilance at the edge of the sea, I've also had the sense that there is some other way to understand the ethical erosion that engenders our disaffection with modern life. The tendency of ruling bodies, for example, to be lenient with entrenched corruption. The embrace of extrajudicial murder as a legitimate tool of state the entitlement attitudes of those in power, the compulsion of religious fanatics to urge other human beings to embrace, embrace the fanatic's heaven. The pervasiveness of these ethical breaches encourages despair and engenders a kind of social entropy. And their widespread occurrence suggests that the problems are intractable. I can't say what this other way of looking at these situations is, how a huge domed space like the daylit ocean, a space almost entirely free of objects and offering a different sense of time passing, might provide a perspective to make banal human failure seem less enduring, less threatening. But taking in this view, I always sense that more room for us to maneuver exists, that what halts us is simply a failure of imagination. One of the things to me that's fascinating about this is that the same view or the same um, attention being brought to bear in a place that could um, remind you in some way of, of human um, brutality to, to our, ourselves or others or to the environment to the natural quote unquote world that that same intention can also give you the sense that 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 other answers are possible that both of these things come in more into clarity because of the attention you're bringing to bear I, uh, 
I would say yes, and that the in, that the attention that I try to pay to darkness and to places we call the light um, is intentional because you're going to drive the car off the road if you go to the right or the left there and say, I see a vision of the future that's beautiful and we're thriving or whatever, or I see peril, nothing but peril. What you have to be careful of is to never let your um, spirit of life become paralyzed by the darkness that you're faced with. You, you've, it's, it's, um, there, there's some kind of movement that you can do with your body to keep you from being swallowed in, in despair. Is that, is that hard for you to not be swallowed by despair given what you've seen and what you know about the world? Oh, yeah. I, I would say um, – I, I know quite a few things that I would never speak of uh, to you even if we were off radio and sitting in the green room or something because they they just can't be managed without some kind of context. I, I, I often in my life recall um, one elder in particular who whom I became formally associated with in 1981. I, I go over what he um, what he says, which is always instructive for me. One thing he said once was, you know, Barry, we don't tell all the stories to all the people. And I feel I'm in, I felt that that was an instruction. Take in the horror that you will see in war-torn, so a war-torn zone or something like that, but you have no reason to believe that this will help another person. It, 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 it's too far beyond the reach of everyday life for all of us. And that's why in the beginning of the book, in the short prologue where I'm with my grandson, um, I took him to see the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor on Oahu. I wanted him to see it with me and try to explain why we harm each other at, at this scale, um, what, why? I should say, in case people are hearing seagulls right now, I'm not sure if that's being no, picked up by our, by our the, the mics in the studio. But I imagine my, that's your phone. It's my fault. Okay. It's no, ravens, no. and that's Raven. my ringtone. Uh, you know what? If there's going to be a phone call uh, during a conversation, <laughs> I want it to be when I'm talking to Barry, Barry Lopez and when there's a raven ringtone. So that's just – it's perfect. S- sorry about that. Um, so I was with my grandson, and uh, what I say there is I can explain uh, – in the face of his incredulity that we harm each other at this level. But I also make the decision that now will not be the time I'll tell him about the 8th Air Force in Dresden. Now is not the time that I will talk about the invasion of Nanking. He's going to learn about that. Maybe he's never heard of, of Antietam. But it, that I say it would be cruel to take a child and start to instruct the child in the scale of harm that we can cause. Um, before we're done, I, I just I want to ask you, you have been given a terminal cancer diagnosis, as some of our listeners may know. Has that diagnosis, that knowledge, affected the way you think about all the, the, the worldly issues, the global issues we've been talking about? Well, yes, but not... Uh, it's not some version of I see the light. <laughs> you know, it, what, what's really happened with that diagnosis is that I found a kind of a depth of compassion for the world that I hadn't felt before. Um, I, almost everywhere I go now, I, I, I want to embrace a stranger and ask how they're doing if they seem to be in trouble um, and I, I easily think uh, many of us are in, in deep trouble of one sort or another, a broken heart or a cancer diagnosis or whatever. Um, and it, it calls for kindness uh, toward each other and compassion. I mean, I, I've thought— It doesn't necessarily. It, it could lead to a kind of very understandable turning inward. It could, and and there's your end. You've given yourself the end of your life if you do that. Hmm. 
I wonder what it would be like in the United States now with Mr. Trump, etc., if we were not a polarized nation because we suddenly developed a more compassionate uh, attitude toward others. I'm, I'm not talking Pollyanna here. I'm talking somebody that gets the kind of diagnosis that I got and who can choose to say, from here out, I will find a deeper sense of compassion for everyone, everybody walking down the streets of Portland. Only connect. <clears throat> you describe your, your young self uh, early on in the book uh, when you were a boy as curious but wary. You say you were a suburban crow. I was a suburban crow. What are you now? Uh, an old suburban crow. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm not a suburbanite. I've lived in the woods for 50 years here, but um, I, you know, I'm a cosmopolitan person. You know, I can't say that I live in the woods all the time. You know, I'm going to New York next week, and you know, I have a life full of things like that. But um, I, I don't, I don't know what I am now. Uh, maybe those ravens calling. You know, I'm just one of the flock of of ravens living in the world and trying to make it easier for other people and encourage youngsters. Every time I go to a university, I'm my sense of of possibility is renewed by these fierce young men and women who um, they see what's coming and uh, they have terrific energy and a terrific sense of survival. And I hope, uh, I mean, it brings me to tears when somebody hands me a book to sign that meant so much to them uh, or usually they say this meant so much to my parents and now it means so much to me. Thank you. Well, Barry Lopez, even if you don't think you're anybody special, um, it was a real honor and a pleasure talking to you. Oh, Thank you very thanks. much. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was Barry Lopez in an interview in March of 2019. Lopez died on Christmas Day, 2020. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.